0: Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in dallas fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty i pray that you will be blessed by today's episode
1: hello everyone welcome to the upper room podcast we are so happy you're here this wednesday we heard from pastor mclaughlin as he continues the teaching series god is one explanation of new testament passages in this message he dives into the old testament it provides further evidence that there is only one God. The Old and New Testaments are not separate Bibles, but together they are the complete Word of God. We hope that you are encouraged by this episode.
0: And I will be reading to you from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then I will turn your attention to Matthew chapter 3. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 and then Matthew chapter 3 verse 13 through 17 we have been on our wednesday nights we have been exploring one god in fact what we're talking about god is one explanations from the new testament However, you can't even begin to explore the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament because what was concealed, what was concealed in the Old Testament was revealed in the New Testament. So to say that the Godhead is a mystery is a misnomer. The Godhead is very, very clearly revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament what was concealed in the Old Testament because it was prophetic. He didn't pre-exist the incarnation. And so absolutely it was a mystery and it was concealed in the Old Testament. But in Bethlehem, Judah, what was concealed in the Old Testament was revealed in the New Testament. And this is why Paul said to Timothy and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he revealed what the mystery was. God manifested in the flesh. And so it's not, A mystery that we just have to somehow embrace that there's a trinity and and so this is what I want to talk about tonight Uh, specifically I'm going to talk to you tonight about the baptism of Jesus from a monotheistic view really we shouldn't even have to say a monotheistic view because that's all the Bible knows the Bible is a monotheistic book obviously beyond a book but there was no concept the the Bible does not reveal a Trinity. In fact, when you get into the new Testament, there's more of a monotheistic view expressed or revealed in the new Testament. So it's not like, it's not like you've got the old Testament, then there were 400 silent years. And all of a sudden in the new Testament, there's a Trinity um, that's now revealed. There's one seamless thread of mono one theism, God, one God from Genesis to Revelation. So let's read together Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This is what's called the, the Shema. This is the Hebrew prayer. It was one of the two main prayers that they pray consistently. And there is no negotiating this concept of one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thine heart, with all of thy soul, and with all of thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Notice verse seven, what does it tell us to do? Teach, teach, teach what? Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. And when thou walkest by thy way. And when thou liest down. And when thou risest up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand. And they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house. And on thy gates. They were so emphatic about this message of one God that literally they, there was a little box with the shema, the prayer, inside the box. And they would open up that, that little box and they would pull it out. And on a daily basis, they would read, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That does not change in the New Testament. It's only re-emphasized in the New Testament. And so now we will read Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered him and he said to him, permit it to be so now. Need to underscore this little phrase right here. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he allowed him. So there was something behind the meaning of fulfilling all righteousness that convinced John, I need to baptize Jesus. So our question, one of the questions we need to ask is, what was fulfilling all righteousness? What did that mean? So that Initially, John is saying, no way, I'm not baptizing you. If anybody gets baptized, I'm getting baptized and you're baptizing me. Jesus said, listen, just permit it so for now so that we can fulfill all righteousness. John says, okay, so then here's what occurs. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember what we learned in week one, we learned that all scriptures have to work in harmony with one God. So we read Deuteronomy 6, four, O Israel, the Lord, our God is one Lord. And that exclusive truth is throughout eternity. It does not change in the new Testament. So then what we have to do is reconcile and take a look at the baptism of Jesus through the lens and through the eyes of one God. Not through the lens, the glasses, or perspective of three gods. You with me? So let's pray together before you're seated. Savior, Lord, you are so wonderful, God of heaven, you are so faithful. Pray that you would open up our hearts and our eyes today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Everyone said, In Jesus' name, may be seated. Thank you for standing tonight. I will seek to answer three questions that surround the baptism of Jesus and the Godhead. Number one, why was Jesus baptized? Number two, does the manifestation of the dove represent the third person in a Godhead? And number three, does the voice from heaven indicate one God speaking to another God in the Godhead? Once again, my objective tonight is to answer three questions. Why was Jesus even baptized? Number two, does the manifestation of the dove that alighted or lighted upon Jesus represent the third person in the Godhead? And finally, number three, does the voice from heaven indicate one God communicating to another God within the Godhead? So if we pause right there and just think logically about this, Think think in terms of, okay. so if we're talking about literal and translating this literally, then that would literally mean that the third person in the Godhead is in the in the form of a dove and not a human being. And so already we have we have a distorted view of the Godhead here. Secondly, the voice from heaven, we know John 1:18 says, "No man has seen God at any time." John 4:24 says, "God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth." Luke 24 and 39, Jesus said, "Handle me and see for uh, flesh and blood, uh, flesh and bones. A spirit does not have flesh and bones." Excuse me, a spirit does not have flesh and bones." And so what he is saying is that God is invisible, the only visible form is the body of Jesus Christ, and there's no way in the world that if there even was a third person in the Godhead that it would be in the shape or in the form of a dove. So as a way of introduction, Jesus was 100% humanity and 100% deity. In his humanity, he was a Jew, and because he was a Jew, he must fulfill all righteousness as a Jew who would become prophet, priest, and king. While it is clearly understood from Isaiah's writings that he was Emmanuel, God with us, mighty God, and everlasting Father, This did not mean that he was exempt from fulfilling all righteousness as a Jewish man. You need to underscore that. This is why he said this to John. So in his human role, he still had to fulfill all righteousness, just as all priests, prophets, and kings had to fulfill all righteousness if they were going to serve in these offices. This is exclusive now to his human role. This is where his baptism as well as other aspects of fulfilling all righteousness enters the picture. One main purpose for his baptism was for acceptance by the Hebrew people as Messiah, and yet many still rejected him. Mary was a Jew, Joseph was a Jew, and therefore to fulfill all righteousness Eight days after Jesus was born, he had to be circumcised to fulfill. So baptism was not exclusive to fulfilling all righteousness. From the time he was born, he had to fulfill all righteousness as a Jew. So even eight days, in fact, the Bible says after Mary's purification, eight days, Jesus was circumcised according to the Jewish rite handed down by Abraham. Then they offered the appropriate sacrifices, which was two turtle doves for a firstborn son. This is part of fulfilling all righteousness. Let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Again, all of this to fulfill all righteousness. As it is written in the law, law of righteousness, of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Jesus was taught the Jewish scriptures. He followed the Jewish law. He went to the temple in Jerusalem at 12 years of age. Luke chapter 2 verse 42. In his earthly public ministry of teaching and preaching, Jesus never once preached a sermon or taught a lesson redefining the persons in the Godhead. You need to underscore that. You never hear anything coming out of Jesus Christ's mouth when he's either preaching or teaching that would redefine the Godhead. And he never, he never declared that he was God the Son or a second person in the Godhead. On the contrary, he claimed to be the great I Am jehovah of the old testament what was concealed in the old testament was revealed in the new testament when you look into the face of jesus christ that's why paul said in second corinthians 4 and 4 that it was the light the power of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ the light was the symbol of ideal truth to the hebrews power was the symbol of idea, uh, ideal of truth to the greeks and and knowledge, knowledge to the Romans. And so they said, if you want all three worldviews, you need to look into the face of Jesus Christ because the only way that you can see God is to look into the face of Jesus Christ because God is invisible. But if you want the visible form, according to Colossians chapter one, he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. His name is Jesus. He is the fullness of the Godhead, God dwelling within him. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. So, he is fulfilling all righteousness. He was completely consistent with the Jewish environment within which he operated. In fact, he said to them, "...I said therefore unto you, you shall die in your sins." For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so it definitely is or was then and continues to be a matter of salvation as to what we believe about the Godhead and who Jesus Christ is. Well, then they said unto him, who are you? They said unto him, who are you? And Jesus saith unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. We are not left to guess if Jesus believed the same as the Jewish people. Because he explicitly confirmed the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 and 4, when he quotes it in Mark chapter 12, 28 through 30. And this is what it says. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, with all of thy soul, with all of thy mind, and with all of thy strength. This is the first commandment. As author and professor Sean Finnegan stated in, in regard to Mark and the statement that Jesus made, this statement leaves no wiggle room for additional persons in the Godhead. As followers of Jesus, we should adopt his beliefs as our beliefs. Jesus never quoted or even heard of the Athanasian Creed, wherein it is stated that God is a trinity. This is, this is not even anyone that is Pentecostal or apostolic. But in studying the scripture and understanding the Shema and knowing that Jesus cited the Shema and that he did not depart from one God, he just claimed to be that one God. Amen. He wasn't claiming to be a second God in the Godhead. In fact, that did not even, that concept didn't really come to being until the Athanasian Creed, which was about, or or actually the Nicene Creed, which was about 325, and then 381, uh, Athanasius. And so the Trinitarian doctrine did not even exist in the New Testament writing. They didn't have to sit there and explain and go over and over and over and over again because there was no such thought. They just declared Jesus Christ is God. Amen. Amen. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no debate in any of this. It's only because of around 300 A.D. forward that we're even having to go back and forth with negotiation and debate, which really there is no debate in Scripture. As we examine the baptism of Jesus, we must remember... And and we laid these rules down, the four rules of of interpreting the Godhead when when there is a difficult text, when it looks like there can be a duality. There is a real duality. However, it's not a duality of persons. It's always a duality of roles. So then what we have to do is ask ourselves when we're reading a passage of Scripture, is is it speaking of him in his deity? Or is it speaking of him in his humanity? Or sometimes is it speaking as both? So now let's apply that rule to the baptism of Jesus and let's take a look at it. Are we t- when he is being baptized, are we talking about his deity? Are we talking about his humanity? Or are we talking about both? So now let's unpack this together. Why was Jesus baptized in the first place? Why was Jesus baptized in the first place? Since the voice and the dove were symbolic manifestations of one omnipresent, omniscient God, we may ask, what did they represent? What was their purpose? First, we must ask, what was the purpose of Jesus' baptism? Certainly he was not baptized for the remission of sins as we are because we know that he was sinless. So it's not like Jesus had to be baptized because he was a sinner. He was sinless. And so automatically we know that he was doing this to fulfill all righteousness and to be an example. So in 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, it says, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus Christ did not sin. Jesus Christ could not sin. He was tempted to sin in his human role, but as God, he could not sin and remain God. Why then did he have to become sin for us? So that you and I, look at what the verse says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the doctrine of once saved, always saved is not accurate. It is not true. You can be saved, receive the Holy Ghost, and go out tomorrow and commit sin. One day you are saved. If you backslide and you are lost and you are sinning, the next day you are not saved. You there is no eternal security. And 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 Jesus Christ. He wasn't hanging on just barely. There's absolutely no way. He was tempted at all points like as we were, absolutely, but he could not sin. The reason that he took on our sin is so that you and I could walk in righteousness. So, you know, we're all, you you know, that that Baptist statement, that Baptist statement that says, um, we're all just sinners saved by grace. Well, then what does the Bible mean? Saints of God. When you were a sinner, that was prior to being born again of water and spirit. But when you were born again of water and spirit, you became a saint of God. That doesn't mean that you and I are perfect. Yes, we will sin from time to time, but we are now saints. We are not perpetually sinners that was when we that was before christ but once we were baptized in the name of jesus christ received the gift of the holy ghost spoke in other tongues and we are living a life of sanctification we are now saints of god separated from the world i hope we're not all sinners because sinners are not going in the rapture you need to make up your mind i am not a daily sinner I am a saint of God. If I sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His mediatorial role, the Lamb of God, is what I can run to, confess my sins. He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. And then he cleanses me of that sin. And he allows me to live as a saint of God. Can we clap our hands to him and give him praise? Amen. So we know that he was not baptized because he was a sinner. Instead, the Bible says that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, according to Matthew 3, verse 15. Jesus used baptism as the starting point in his ministry. It was a public declaration of who he was and of what he came to do. For example... At Christ's baptism, John the Baptist learned who Jesus was. He did not know that Jesus really was the Messiah until the baptism or until his baptism. And after baptism, he was able to declare to the people that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Hebrew word Messiah or Christ in Greek means anointed one. Jesus came to fulfill the roles of Christ prophet, priest and king. a king according to acts 3:20 20 through 23, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 and Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. He also came to fulfill all of the law. In fact, Paul said in the book of Galatians that the law was a schoolmaster that led us to Jesus Christ. So you can literally go back to the law of Moses and you can follow the righteousness of the law. And if you keep following it in the New Testament, you land at Jesus Christ because he perfectly fulfilled all the righteousness of the law. And so by virtue of fulfilling all the righteousness of the law, he does away with the law and moves us into the church age or the grace dispensation or um, what we would commonly call the grace dispensation. He also came to fulfill the law and to keep his own law. He needed to be anointed as prophet, priest, and king. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill the law. Since Jesus was God himself and since Jesus was a sinless man, an anointing by a sinful human, An anointing with symbolic oil was not enough. Instead, Jesus was anointed directly by the Spirit of God. Now, what we're talking about, let me ask you a question. What are we talking about right now? Are we talking about his deity or his humanity? When he's baptized, are we talking about his deity or are we talking about his humanity? So, because right now, our subject is, we're talking about the complete 100% man, Christ Jesus. Absolutely, the man needed the Spirit of God to anoint him. He was an example to you and I. He hungered, he thirsted, he slept, he ate, he cried, he, he mourned, he grieved. He felt everything just like we do. Yet at the same time, because he is God, he can take five loaves and two fish. He can break them and he can multiply them. Amen. As God, he does not even hunger. But as man, he hungers. And so there is a true dual nature in the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. So in his 100% humanity, absolutely for. For the people and for John, he had to have the Spirit of God anoint him. It was an example, just like you and I, we need the Spirit of God to anoint us. Now, in human role, you, you, know, you know when a preacher gets up here and a preacher's anointed versus when a preacher's not anointed. It's like, My Lord, man, he... He just wasn't anointed tonight. I don't know what happened, but he just wasn't anointed tonight. We know when the anointing of God has lighted upon a man or has not lighted upon a man. And we need that spirit of God. Interesting to me, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but interesting to me, and just good food for thought, why why was it a dove that landed upon Jesus and not fire, tongues of fire, like at Pentecost? Because he was sinless and he was pure and he was holy. Therefore, he did not need the fire to purify him. The dove was pure, purity on purity to represent the deity side or that he is completely pure. However, in the upper room, 120, what did they need? It wasn't the dove they needed the fire why because you and i are impure as human beings and we need the fire of god sitting upon us we still need the fire of god baptizing the church because we are prone to sin he wasn't gonna sin it was purity it was an affirmation of purity it was not the third person in the godhead it was an affirmation that he is the god man he is pure. It was purity on purity. But tongues of fire on humanity was, we need, because you and I are so impure, we need the fire of God falling on us. Amen. 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 The dove was not a third person. Nor was the dove intended to represent a third person in an assumed trinity. The dove was a temporary manifestation that symbolized Jesus as the Messiah or he was anointed. So, second question Does the manifestation of the dove represent the third person in the Godhead? Does the manifestation of the dove represent the third person? In the Godhead. John chapter 1, verse 32 through 34 clearly states that the dove was a sign for the benefit of John the Baptist. Wasn't, remember, remember this, when Matthew wrote, and, and, and you can look and you can try to uh, affirm the date of writing, but some will say that he wrote in the late 50s, some will stretch it all the way out to the 70s. But most scholars out there and commentaries will say it was somewhere late 50s to 60, early 60s. Okay, so there was no Trinitarian thought. That did not come about until 300. And and so it wasn't that they were proclaiming that there was the Father in heaven, and there was the Son on earth, and then there was the third person of the Godhead. The dove lighting upon the man, Christ Jesus, was for John the Baptist. Let's take a look at it. John chapter 1, 32 through 34. And John bore witness. John bore witness. Saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him. I did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this temporary manifestation clearly primarily was to let John know my anointing is on him one of the reasons why one of the reasons why is they say one author I think it was Kaiser who said that during the time of Jesus there were about eight other men who were proclaiming to be the Christ Jesus was not the only one saying I am the Christ there were several people I mean you know through time even since I've been alive there have been people say I am Jesus Christ you know and 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 this will also happen this will also happen um, the Antichrist will will, proclaim that he has all power. Okay, so what we're looking at here is the affirmation, first of all, for John. John was incapable of seeing the Spirit of God anointing Christ. So God chose a dove as the visible sign of his Spirit, just as tongues of fire were a visible sign of the Spirit of God on the 120 in the upper room. The dove was a special sign for John to let him know that Jesus was Jehovah, the Messiah. The dove also was a type of anointing signifying the beginning of Christ's ministry. In the Old Testament, remember we have to fulfill all law, all righteousness. In the Old Testament, priests were both washed in water and they were anointed with oil. This was a pattern of the Old Testament. The oil symbolized God's spirit. So in order for him to truly be received from the Jews as high priest, this anointing had to be on him. Let's take a look at Hebrews 4:14. 4, Seeing then that we have what? A great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest. If he had not been anointed, he would not have even been received as high priest. This was a common pattern in in Jewish life. And so he, being a Jew, had to be anointed. So instead of a man, like Samuel pouring the horn of oil on David, instead of that, instead of a man doing it, it was actually the dove or this temporary manifestation to emphasize that he is our king, he is our priest, and he is our prophet. And that's why the writer of Hebrews could say that he is our high priest. It's one of the reasons why. Notice verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the final question, does the voice from heaven indicate one God speaking to another God? Does the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, does this indicate that there's one God speaking to another God while a third God in the shape of a dove is on the body? And if you say, yes, that's true, then, how do we reconcile that with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. How do we reconcile that with Isaiah 43, 10 and 11? Year, my witnesses, saith the Lord and my servants, that you may know me and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I even, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. So, if that's Yahweh in the Old Testament, how would we reconcile that with Luke chapter 2, verse 11? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ. So, if there's more than one Savior who's the Savior is it Jehovah in the Old Testament according to Isaiah 43 10 11 or is it Jesus in the New Testament if he is a second person in the Godhead uh, because it says he is the only Savior which one is the Savior if Jesus is God but Jehovah's God in the Old Testament and he said there is no other beside me then who is the God but when you understand that Jesus Christ is Jehovah's Savior He is Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Savior who was manifested in humanity in the New Testament. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Paul said in Ephesians, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Amen. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and was received up into glory. We know the one who was received up into glory is Jesus. Yet in the beginning of that passage, it says God was manifested in the flesh. That is Yahweh was manifested in the flesh. His name is Jesus. Jesus said in John 5, 43, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. Matthew 1, the Son's name is Jesus. John 14, 26, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. So the name of the Holy Spirit, Jesus. That's why Paul said, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth in him bodily. The word fullness is pleroma. It was a term used by the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed in dualism. They did not believe that pure spirit could dwell in material flesh. And so that's why they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. And Paul was refuting the Gnostics on their own ground when he said, if you, because they believed that the term pleroma meant the sum total of all divine power that when they wanted to talk about the sum total of all divine power, they would use the term pleroma. And so Paul said, okay, if you really want to know pleroma, if you really want to know the sum total of all divine power, Jesus is the fullness, the pleroma of the Godhead. The sum total of all power. He didn't, he was not a subordinate God. He was not a demigod, God. He was not a junior God. He is Everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. He's Mighty God. He's King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. He's Alpha Omega. Beginning, ending, first, last, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. One God. Beautiful example at his baptism of three roles of one God. Deed in humanity, operating. Dove manifest, proved to John. John even declared, I didn't even know him until I saw this happening. So it was not to affirm a trinity, it was to affirm the God man, anointed as king, priest, and prophet. So then final question, does the voice from heaven indicate one God speaking to another God? The voice came from heaven for the benefit of the people. Dove, benefit for John. Voice, benefit of the people. John chapter 12, 28 through 30 records a similar incident in which the voice came from heaven confirmed the deity of Jesus to the people. Jesus said that it came not for his benefit, but for the people's sake. Many people were present at the baptism of Jesus. And many were being baptized, according to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. So the Spirit singled out the man, Jesus, and identified him to all as the Son of God by a miraculous voice from heaven. Three times in the life of Jesus, a voice came from heaven. At his baptism, at his transfiguration, Matthew 17:1 through 9 and after his triumphal entry. In each of the three cases, the voice was not for the benefit of Jesus, certainly was not emphasizing a Trinitarian Godhead, but was always for the benefit of others. And it came for a specific purpose. As we have learned, the voice at Christ's baptism was part of the inauguration of his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. So remember to fulfill all righteousness. Eight days, he's fulfilling all righteousness. 12 being in the temple, he's fulfilling all righteousness. Anointed king, priest, prophet, he's fulfilling all righteousness. The inauguration of his ministry at age of 30, which is what occurred, um, the the Old Testament priesthood was from 30 to 50. So so the age 30, it was saying now his public ministry as God, the son of God, is beginning right now. So it was for the people. His voice was for the people, let them know. John chapter 12, 28 through 30. Listen, listen to what Jesus says. And so get, get comfortable with these passages. Get comfortable with these passages. When you hear Father, that doesn't mean, oh no, see, there's the Trinity. When you hear Son and Father, and, and you know, when so the Son is saying, Father, glorify thy name, oh no, no, harmonize that with all of the Old Testament passages. Be comfortable conversing with these terms, their roles, not distinct persons. So, Jesus, as a complete, 100% man, Father, glorify thy name. Well, what name are we talking about? Then came their voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people, therefore, you see that? The people, therefore, stood by and heard it and said that it is, thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. You see, it's for the people. It's not declaring two or three gods. So in summary, in summary, you can stand with me. Number one, the baptism of Jesus does not teach us that God is three persons, but only reveals the omnipresence of God and the humanity of the Son of God. The baptism of Jesus was to fulfill all righteousness of the law for him to be received as Messiah. Number two, the dove was to visibly proclaim the earthly ministry of Jesus as the Son of God. Number three, the Son of God is for the purpose of salvation through his shed blood. Jesus is both Father and Son, according to Isaiah 7:14, Isaiah 9.6, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and John 14, verse 6 through 9. He said, When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip saith to him, Lord, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. He said, have I not been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? In John chapter 12, he said, he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. Verse, or excuse me, number four, the voice from heaven reveals God's omnipresence and demonstrates that he cannot be contained in a body on earth or only in heaven. He is everywhere at all times. The voice being pleased with the beloved son is affirming the perfect sinless sacrifice for our sins and was for the people to look to Jesus as Jehovah savior, not to announce a second person in a Trinitarian Godhead. Number five, The date of Matthew's writing was late 50s to 60s AD. The concept of a trinity did not even surface until 300s AD. Matthew was a Jew who embraced one God. Number six, all scripture must harmonize with a monotheistic view of God from the Old Testament passages. To view it in any other way would be to violate the Shema and undermine the entire message of the entire Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Isaiah 40, 25 said, Jehovah speaking, to whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith what? The Holy One. And yet in Philippians chapter two, verse five, The scripture says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jehovah said, I have no equal. Jesus said, I am equal. Well, you can't be equal unless you are God. Jehovah said, I'm the holy one, not the holy two. I don't have an equal. So when Jesus declared equality, he was saying, I am God. Viewing the baptism of Jesus from the perspective of three roles. Father is the role of deity. Son is the role of humanity while holding distinctly to one God, upholds the integrity of Scripture and remains consistent with biblical monotheism. Viewing the baptism of Jesus as a way to affirm two or three persons in the Godhead is to violate the biblical message of one God and adopts a doctrine that was introduced much later than the New Testament was written. This view is not consistent with the biblical view of God and does great damage to the integrity of Scripture. Once again, and I conclude with this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and was received up into glory." The voice from heaven, the dove, and the man, it's a perfect picture of three roles of one God to affirm he was anointed priest, prophet, and king. Ultimate king of kings who ultimately will reign in a theocratic government in the 1,000 year reign that we call the millennial reign And he will sit on the throne of David to rule as king forever and ever and ever and ever. Can we give him praise together right now?
1: Thank you so much for listening. This message was incredible as God's healing power moved. I cannot wait to see all the incredible things that God is going to do here at CPC as we continue to grow better together. If you would like to stay connected with the church, podcasts, and upcoming events, You can visit us at calvaryulis.org or on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Calvary Pentecostal Church. God bless.